Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. recent trip to London with friends, we visited Covent Garden. Now, if you haven't been there, it's a vibrant area in the heart of the City of London, with lots of little stalls selling gifts and crafts. There's live street entertainment, a variety of foods and an amazing atmosphere. At this time of year, the festive decorations are stunning, and it currently has giant mistletoe and baubles the size of a house, literally. But it hasn't always been a tourist hotspot thriving history started as early as the 7th century as a Saxon settlement. It is believed that it was a supporting town, then called Londonwick, of a nearby Saxon port. It was on the River Thames, whose shoreline then was the Strand. Since then, it has undergone many changes. First, it was the Convent Garden, and was tended by the monks of Westminster Abbey. For a time, the land remained in the monks' possession, and in the possession of several leaseholders, until 1536, when King Henry VIII seized the land as part of the dissolution of the monasteries. His young son, King Edward VI, granted the land to John Russell, 1st Earl of Bedford, in 1552. It then developed into the largest produce market in the world, bustling fruit and vegetable market, with people carrying barrels and baskets on their heads, flower girls shouting at the top of their lungs, costermongers hawking produce, and all the while everyone is trying to outshout their competitors, packed side by side like sardines. Word of the week. And this week, I give you... Mutton shunter, which is uh, quite an offensive term for a policeman in Victorian London, where a big part of the job would be telling prostitutes to move on, and shunt, which is slang for move or push. Mutton is the meat of an adult sheep, but there's a phrase in English, mutton dressed up as lamb, which means an old woman dressed up as much as she can as a younger one, often in inappropriate, revealing or over-the-top clothes. So, for that reason, mutton was sometimes used as slang for prostitutes, and so a mutton chunter is a person whose job is to push them 
out of the way of certain areas in London. It really took a few generations before anything worth mentioning was built on this land. Francis Russell, the fourth Earl of Bedford, commissioned royal architect Inigo Jones to build a square with houses fit for gentlemen and men with ability. Almost as an afterthought, he directed Jones to build a church there as well because the aristocrats had to go to church somewhere. Legend has it that, not wanting to spend very much money, Russell asked that the church be no more elaborate than a barn, to which Jones responded, you shall have the finest barn in London. And as a result, the impressive St Paul's Church is now at the centre of Covent Garden life ever since and is referred to as the Actors' Church due to its association with the nearby theatre industry. The front of the church with his portico on the square was never in fact meant to be the main entrance, although this may have been Jones's first intention. The altar lies behind this wall and the entrance is at the far end of this. The stone facing of this facade is also later. Originally, it was apparently brick with stucco. The other sides of the building remain brick, with details in stone. A notable burial in the churchyard was Margaret Pontius, who was the first known victim of the outbreak of the plague in England between 1665 and 1666. She was buried on the 12th of April, 1665. The portico of St Paul's was the setting for the first scene of Shaw's Pygmalion, the play that was later adapted as My Fair Lady. And the theatrical connections don't end there because the artist J.M.W. Turner and dramatist Sir William S. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan were both baptised in St Paul's. There are many memorials in the church dedicated to famous entertainment personalities of the 20th century, including Sir Charlie Chaplin, Sir Noel Coward, Dame Gracie Field and Richard Beckinsale. And in 2002, the church hosted the first of two weddings, the other one was held in Los Angeles, for musicians Gwen Stefani and Gavin Rossdale. When I was there, I noticed that there was an engraving of a face on the church. It marks where Samuel Pepys observed the first ever Punch and Judy show on the 9th of May, 1662. And if you turn around, you can see the Punch and Judy pub, built in 1787, named after this particular event. Now, this area is licensed for street entertainment and performers actually audition for timetabled slots in a number of venues around Covent Garden, including the North Hall, West Piazza and South Hall Courtyard. As early as 1656, markets began gathering at Covent Garden's new square, though the population was still sparse, composed mostly of wealthier tenants. Being relatively new and out of the way, Covent Garden had the fortune to skirt the worst of the plague in 1665 and it avoided the Great Fire of London entirely in 1666. This meant, however, that Londoners leaving the destroyed city of London found themselves migrating to the West End and Covent Garden. 
This huge influx of people meant that the market practically exploded with activity. And in a bid to regulate the rapid spread of the market, King Charles II granted a royal charter in 1670 to formalise the presence of Covent Garden. As you can imagine, having so many people of various cultures, the nobility who had been encouraged to live there started moving out. And this exodus was increased when two theatres were built in the area. This made Covent Garden London's theatrical centre, attracting droves of theatre-goers who thronged the streets of Drury Lane and Bow Street and brought in their wake a flourishing trade in prostitution. With Covent Garden sliding into decline, many coffee houses popped up. Not like the ones we have today, though. These would be used not just as meeting places, but also as brothels. Moll and Tom King's coffee house, for example, was notorious as a place where prostitutes and their customers could meet before moving elsewhere to conduct their business. The coffee house Buttons, on the other hand, was completely different. In 1713, the writer Joseph Addison wanted to make Buttons the literary centre of London and advertised that he would place a lion's head letterbox at the coffee house where people could place letters in, contributing their opinions to Addison's newspapers. As a result, Buttons became very popular. Prominent wits as Alexander Pope, Richard Steele and Jonathan Swift came to Buttons a lot and their debates featured in The Tatler, The Spectator and The Guardian. The idea for this box wasn't original as it was imported from Venice, where stone letterboxes, often carved into the shape of grotesque heads, were used by the governing body known as the Council of Ten to gather intelligence, and which informers would use to accuse fellow citizens of misdeeds. The one outside Buttons was said to have been designed by the famous illustrator William Hogarth. <laughs> Word on the street. Today, whilst we're in London, we're going to stay in London and visit Hanging Sword Alley. The first record of this street comes from a Tudor house on the site as early as 1564. People didn't have regular street numbers at this time, so symbols or icons were hung outside instead. And this house had a hanging sword. The area was popular with fencing schools, which may be why they chose that sign. But by the 17th century, it was a rough place and was more commonly known as Blood Bowl Alley. It also gets a mention in Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, as it's the home of Jerry Cruncher, a body snatcher. As I mentioned earlier, with a decline in the area, prostitution flourished in Covent Garden. Published from 1757 to 1795, Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies was an annual directory of prostitutes working in and around Covent Garden. This pocketbook would go into detail describing the physical appearance of the girls and what they would and would not do. 
Miss B of Old Compton is described as a mistress of every manoeuvre in the amorous contest that can enhance the coming pleasure. In bed, she is all the heart can wish or I admire. Every limb is symmetry, every action undercover truly amorous. Her price is £2 too. And as for Miss R from Rathbourne Place... Pleasing, though fond, and can make wantonness delightful. Every part assists to bring on the momentary delirium, and then each part combines to raise up the fallen member, to contribute again to repeated rapture. Her price is commonly two guineas. In 1828, the entire area of Covent Garden was rebuilt to a neoclassical design by Charles Fowler to cover and organise the market. It was later expanded with the Floral Hall, Charter Market and Jubilee Market, making it a selling area instead of a social venue, attracting not just gardeners in the form of costermongers and their barrow boys, a name that originated from barrow boys but becoming more popular as a vegetable market. It also was a place for florists, hawkers, tailors and more. Much of what was sold was homegrown, but the market reflected a growing influence from outside Britain's shores, with produce from as far away as America. As the market became more popular, it grew, and so did disorder and overcrowding. In the end, in 1961, the Covent Garden Market Bill was passed and the market was moved in its entirety across the river to Nine Elms by 1974. The area you can visit today was reopened in 1980, preserving its historic buildings and historical meaning. The nearby Theatre Royal in Drury Lane is said to be one of the most haunted theatres in the world, and if any one of its ghosts makes an appearance, they say it's good luck for the actors or production. According to legend, a famous ghost called the Man in Grey was an 18th century nobleman who was stabbed to death in the theatre, his skeletal remains having been found in a walled-up passage in 1848. This ghost wears a cape, a tricorn hat, riding boots and a sword, and is often seen in the upper circle moving along the rear gangway near the royal box where the remains were discovered. The current Theatre Royal on Drury Lane is the most recent of four incarnations, the first of which opened in 1663, making it the oldest continuously used theatre in London. The First Theatre Royal on Drury Lane and the Royal Opera on Bow Street were each granted a patent by King Charles II, allowing them to be the only London theatres able to perform spoken drama. You have to wonder what audiences from around 100 years ago would think of the current production at the Theatre Royal of Frozen the Musical. Are you tired of seeing the latest social media trends and fearing the worst? Does the daily news bring you down? Are you looking for something new and fun to listen to? 
Well, well that's, that's where, where we, we come, come in. in. Hi. Hi. It's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host The Ever-Trending Story, a weekly podcast where we present a fictional story utilizing the hottest happenings in the world and bring it straight to your earbuds. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just go to anchor.fm slash evertrendingpod and subscribe today. Back in the day facts. So let's start off with the 3rd of December 1912, when Bulgaria, Greece, Montenegro and Serbia, or the Balkan League, signed an armistice with the Ottoman Empire, temporarily halting the First Balkan War. This armistice will expire on February 3rd 1913, and then hostilities resumed. On the 4th of December 1872, the crewless American brigadier Mary Celeste was drifting in the Atlantic and discovered by the Canadian brig De Gracia. The ship had been abandoned for nine days, but it was only slightly damaged. Her master, Benjamin Briggs, and all nine others known to have been on board were never accounted for. Also on the 4th of December, but in 1956, the Million Dollar Quartet of Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash get together at Sun Studio in Memphis for the first and last time. On the 5th of December 1952, we saw the beginning of the Great Smog in London, a cold fog combined with air pollution, which brought the city to a standstill for four days. Later, a Ministry of Health report estimates 4,000 fatalities as a result of it. On the 5th of December 1958, subscriber trunk dialing, or STD, is inaugurated in the United Kingdom by Queen Elizabeth II when she speaks to the Lord Provost in a call from Bristol to Edinburgh. And lastly, on the 6th of December 1897, London becomes the world's first city to host licensed taxicabs. Well, I'm afraid that means that is the end of today's show. But don't worry, I'll be here same time, same place, next week with more fascinating tales from history. I've had a message from a Stephanie Shelby who's recently moved to Bath and has been listening to Bradley Stoke Radio. She was wondering if I've ever done a story on her new hometown and if there was any chance I would do some in the future. Well, I'm always open to suggestions, so I'm going to look into it for you. Right now, though, I have to thank Sam Roberts and Steve Shepherd for helping bring this particular story to life. If you ever get a chance to go to London, Covent Garden is a very unique place to visit. I'd also like to recommend Camden Market because that has a completely different feel about it, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. 
So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.